You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. Hello, and thanks for listening to Grounded. We're back this week with Ken Niles, the Oregon Department of Energy's Assistant Director for Nuclear Safety. If you haven't listened to Ken's previous episodes, you're missing out. Ken is a history book of Hanford facts, from the early production years to the giant cleanup project we now face. In this week's episode, we dive into the waste tanks at Hanford. No, not literally. And Ken tells us why this part of the cleanup has been so challenging. Welcome back, Ken, to Grounded. Thanks for being here this morning. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. We have moved quite a bit through Hanford from the early years to the extent of the problem to part of the cleanup. But I think one of the biggest problems at Hanford we haven't really started to tackle yet, and that is the tank waste. The tank waste is is certainly the most difficult challenge remaining at Hanford. There's, a, there's, there's many, but that far and away is what will drive cleanup to last many, many decades beyond what anyone forecasts. So describe these tanks to me. How many are there and what's in them? So during the plutonium production process, uh, there was huge volumes of liquid waste created. Uh, Most of it was not super concentrated or or highly radioactive and was disposed to the soil. But there was some waste streams that were fairly highly concentrated, radioactive materials and chemicals, and they built underground storage tanks. And that was part of the process from right the beginning in 1944 of of the plutonium processing. When those tanks filled, they built more tanks. And when those tanks filled, they built more tanks. And that kind of was repeated numerous times. They started out with a single shell of carbon steel embedded in concrete. That was the first 149 of the tanks that they built. And those started leaking and were recognized as some of them leaking already within the 1950s, within the first decade or so. So by the late 1970s, when they added some additional tanks, they did a two-shell tank, a double-shell tank of carbon steel with a space in between to allow for you know, some added protection of having that. So we have now 177 tanks, 149 are the single-shell tank, the older style, uh, and they vary in size. There's some pretty, uh, a handful of 55,000-gallon tanks most are half a million, three quarters of a million, or a million gallons in size. All of the 28 double shell tanks, which again are newer, uh, but still 30 years old is the newest, uh, they are all more than a million gallons in size. And all of these tanks are full, more or less, of radioactive waste? They're not all full. They're, the double shell tanks are much more full than the single shell tanks because because of the problem with the leaking tanks, there was a concentrated effort quite a while ago to move all the free liquids out of the single shell tanks into the double shell tanks. So the, the, the double shell tanks contain most of the free liquids. And the single shell tanks, a lot of them are empty or nearly empty. Uh, and they, what remains is sludges and salt cake and solids. Things that are less likely to leak out. Things that are less likely to leak out, but also things that are a lot more hard to extract and retrieve. And the idea is that all this waste in all these single-shell tanks will be retrieved at some point. And the Department of Energy has spent many billions of dollars over the past 20 years in developing technologies 
to retrieve waste and actually has retrieved uh, about 16 tanks so far. Where are the tanks located? Are they spread across the site or are they kind of in one area? The tanks are spread throughout the middle part of the site, the central plateau. So they are associated with the processing canyon. So there's a, a lot near T plant and B plant and U plant and redox facility and especially Purex. Uh, which was the kind of the workhorse of the processing canyons at, at Hanford. So they're all over in the 200 east and 200 west site, uh, which is about seven miles in difference in terms of uh, how far apart they are. The plan for treatment eventually will require all of that waste to be pumped somehow to treatment facilities that they've been building on the eastern end of the 200 east site. Um, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just thinking... You know, you can't just send somebody down there with a shovel to get that solid waste out, you know. And no. then whatever you do develop to get that waste out also also becomes waste because yep. it's been, yep. you know, yep. exposed to radioactivity. So you have these tanks spread across the Hanford site. They're full of radioactive material. Some is solid. Some is liquid. What is the end game for this material? So the end game is to remove it from the tanks and to solidify it. And it will still be, it'll still be radioactive. You can't change the properties of the radioactivity. But getting it out of the environment, getting it out of these aging, leaking tanks, uh, it will be much easier to contain, to store, uh, eventually to dispose, and uh, to keep the environment and the workers safe. So how do you make radioactive material solid? So the idea would be that you would separate the waste into two different waste streams. And the idea is to concentrate the most radioactivity into one of these waste streams. And the rough numbers they've used, and, and they are rough numbers, is basically 10% of the waste would contain 90% of the radioactivity. And conversely, 90% of the waste would contain only 10% of the radioactivity. And there are uh, federal laws in terms of what has to happen with high-level radioactive waste. In, in general, it needs to be disposed in a deep geologic disposal facility, which we don't currently have for that. Right, I think we've talked about that we've in talked previous about that. episodes. And, yeah. and, you know, and so that would be stored at the site. The remainder, once the Department of Energy is able to go through this waste reclassification process, and there are ways to do that, so that 90% by volume of waste, the intent is that would be disposed of in shallow land burial at the Hanford site. So initially, in 1989, when the Tri-Party Agreement was first signed, there was a milestone to begin treatment of this waste uh, by 1999. And the intent was to use a process called vitrification, which is mixing glass-making materials under heat with the waste to form a molten glass. And it would be poured into stainless steel canisters where it would then harden. And again, it's still radioactive, but much, much easier to handle and, and deal with. Right. It's not flowing. It's just stuck in It's not flowing. It's the, just yeah. it's, you're able to easily move it around and store it. Initially, the lower activity, that, that 90% of, the, of the, uh, the waste stream with the lower levels of activity, would be grouted, would be mixed with cement-making materials, and would have been placed in large 1.4 million gallon grout vaults. And they built three or four of these at Hanford back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and, and did fill up one. Within a couple of years of this plan, there was concerns about whether or not the grout would be able to actually hold 
some of the more mobile constituents of radioactive materials. And one that's mentioned a lot is technetium-99, which has a very, very long half-life in the hundreds of thousands of years and is very mobile in the environment. So the concern is if you have technetium and you put it into the grout, it's going to get out of the grout at some point and get back into the soil and into the groundwater. So you're defeating some of the purpose of immobilizing the waste. DOE initially was also, uh, the, the focus was really on the waste in the double shell tanks as opposed to the single shell tanks. That was, it was just the, the priority that they set initially was focus on double shell tank waste first, which is where most of the liquids are, and later on we'll come back to the single shell tanks. Well, and the double shell tanks also hold more, right? So they probably thought they would get more out of the way by starting with double shell? I think it was more the, more the aspect of, of dealing with the liquid waste uh, first. So 1989 had this uh, shiny new milestone of 1999. Uh, within a year, uh, actually about a year and a half, Department of Energy uh, told the state of Washington that there are, quote, technical and programmatic concerns that bring into question whether or not we can make that 1999 deadline. And it started a process that we've seen so many times of delays with this, this project. You know, in, in hindsight, they probably were very genuine uh, reasons because this whole process is just not as simple as doing it all in 10 years, as we found. One of the other aspects of the initial plans was that the Department of Energy for its pretreatment facility would use one of the World War II-era canyon facilities, B-plant. And the state of Washington uh, really had concerns about the viability of bringing that into compliance with, uh, with environmental laws. They just didn't feel it was possible to do that. Seems fair. Department of Energy agreed after a time. And by 1993, there were some new, pretty significant changes to the tri-party agreement. So it did delay the treatment and the operation of the facility. Uh, it gave them until 2028 to complete all treatment. Uh, delayed construction. It did kill the grout at the time and added a vitrification plant for the low activity waste. So that was a big significant change. But still things didn't go super smoothly. In 1995 the whole process took a kind of a big left turn when the Department of Energy became enamored with privatization. And so the idea being there is let's get private industry involved, they're innovative, they, you know, they're bottom line people. They'll compete against each other. They'll compete against each other. And so the whole idea was we're not moving forward until we have a privatization contract in place. And so they they felt that we they would get a lot of interest in industry, but but really there aren't that many companies as we've found out at Hanford that that really can do this type of work. And eventually there was a consortium of only two different companies, consortiums of two different companies, that bid on this project. So right from the start, the idea of privatization kind of was a little bit weakened by only having interest from two companies. Both were provided some initial funding, and they both began their, their development of their design and their uh, engineering in terms of what they would do. After a period of time, uh, they, these two companies submitted their initial proposals, and the Department of Energy ruled that one of the designs was really not feasible. So they disqualified that company. And then there was one. And then there was one, in which there was no competition. 
And during this stage, it, it, uh, during these couple of years of privatization of the, the design being done by the, the company, the lead company at the time was BNFL, which is a subsidiary of British Nuclear Fuels, but an American form company for this. During this time, the idea, the idea had been to build a small demonstration facilities and prove the technology, get started with vitrifying some of Hanford's tank waste, and then expand those facilities as you would need afterwards. But during this design process, that kind of went, uh, got lost. And instead, it was a scale up of the facilities to be able to treat the waste all in one go, for the most part. Although it's still, even with what is sized today, it's not gonna deal with all the waste they have. So part of the problem of the privatization is that uh, the Department of Energy would not be paying out any money other than some of this initial design once it really got going. The private company would be required to finance themselves, pay for the cost of the development and the construction, and then only when they started delivering vitrified waste to the Department of Energy would they get paid. And what kind of cost are we looking at to get that going? Well, at the time, the Department of Energy had determined that its construction and operating costs should be about $6 billion. Because of the financing that was required to carry that $6 billion of debt for a number of years until they could begin to get paid, BNFL came up with a cost estimate that they submitted to to, uh, the Department of Energy in April 2000 of $15.2 billion. Everybody immediately freaked. I'm sure. (laughs) It was like, what? And the Department of Energy quickly terminated their contract with BNFL. So privatization was dead. And the whole project seemed dead at the time. Tell me again how many years this had been of trying to move privatization forward only for it to die again. It was about five years uh, through the process, through some initial designs and continued designs from about 1995 till April 2000. 2000, which is one year after the initial deadline deadline. for vitrifying waste. Yes. Yes. I see a trend here. So the Department of Energy did terminate the contract with BNFL. And to their credit at the time, and everybody was real excited about what was going on, the Department of Energy moved very quickly to get a new contract in place. In hindsight, that probably wasn't the best choice, but at the time it seemed like a very proactive response by the Department of Energy. Sure, yeah, you lose your contractor and then you don't want to sit dead in the water doing nothing or have it appear like you're doing nothing. Right. So Bechtel, which is a big international company, had been a partner with BNFL and, and Bechtel was involved with the designs that BNFL had been doing. And in the interim, as the Department of Energy was putting together a new bid for proposals for companies to take on this, they provided Bechtel with some funding to continue the design. And then the new company, once chosen, could choose to either take on that design or begin themselves with a new design. Well, Bechtel ended up getting the contract, so they clearly were going to continue with the design that they had. Uh, And there are elements of that design today that have caused some problems. Uh, There's one aspect in the pretreatment facility called black cells, which the intent is that because of the high radioactivity that you would have within these small rooms within the facility, no person could, could be able to go in there. Oh, sure. 
but it means that if a pipe broke or a pump failed or something within those, you have to have an ability to change out that equipment with remote equipment. And the design was so packed with piping and vessels that there just really wasn't even a means to get a crane or remote equipment in there to do that. So that's, that's a problem in the design that's still being resolved today. So with this new team uh, led by Bechtel, uh, they actually began to construct a large number of facilities collectively called the Waste Treatment Plant. So it consists of the pretreatment facility, which again is, is the most complex of the facilities and would separate the two waste streams. There'd be a vitrification facility for the high-level waste. There would be a vitrification facility for the low-level waste, or low-activity waste as they term it. There'd be an analytical laboratory, and there would be uh, what they call balance of facilities. So all the support facilities that they would need, the glass forming material, storage, power plants, things like that, that all those things that they would need. That began in 2002, so it's 15 years ago. At the same time in about that window of time, the Department of Energy started looking at maybe some alternative technology that could help them get this done quicker and cheaper. And that's a, that's a theme we've seen as well from virtually every new administration that comes through. How do we do that? They look at Hanford and the expectation for how long and how much, and they say there's got to be a way. Well, for a way, they looked at a, a technology called bulk vitrification. And it basically would use what looked like an industrial dumpster uh, in terms of size and shape. It would in, put the waste in that, that container. Dumpster. Dumpster. <laughs> yeah. we, we, did, we did start calling it dumpster bit. Uh, they would put electrodes into the waste and heat it. And the idea would be this would be a whole lot simpler and faster and cheaper. They could actually do some of this within the tank farms themselves. Uh, but there were issues with the melt not occurring correctly, the waste not being contained within the melted glass. Again, uh, technetium and other more volatile materials getting out of the glass and not, not staying in there. So it was a lot of people, including Oregon, pretty quickly soured on bulk vitrification. Uh, it did continue on for a lot longer than it probably should have, uh, with uh, a lot of money going towards trying to prove and again prove the technology make it work yeah. and make it work hmm. so that was that was probably the biggest sidetrack really in terms of just a, a little bit of focus and money going to something that didn't pan out so the collective waste treatment plant you said has a vitrification facility for high level waste and one for low level waste why d does it need to be separate why can't you use the same vitrification facility for all of the waste so the main, the main difference really is that the, the high-level waste vitrification facility, because of the higher levels of radioactivity, does pose a, a greater risk to the workers. So they do need to have more shielding. There are certain aspects that they would need to use robotics where they wouldn't need to do some of those things in the low activity because the, the radioactive levels are so much lower. So it sounds like in addition to a safety concern, I suppose you could say gallon by gallon, it would be more expensive to vitrify the high-level waste because of all these extra protections. And so if you have a separate facility, you can do it for less money? Theoretically, yes. I mean, it's, it's so much money regardless. So construction began in 2002 in this, this huge 
expansive facilities, and they're very large facilities, especially the pretreatment facility has the, the footprint of about four football fields and uh, some 70 feet high. In 2005, the Department of Energy realized that they needed to revalidate their seismic construction standards for these facilities. And that resulted in nearly a two-year stop in construction on the pretreatment facility and the high-level waste facility while they did that. They found out that they really had been pretty conservative to begin with, and the construction that they'd already done did not need to be redone, which was great. That's good news. They'd already overbuilt the foundations and and the walls and the rebars. What it did change a little bit was the design moving forward in terms of piping and things that needed to be suspended from the ceiling, for example, might need to be beefed up a little bit to withstand greater seismic forces. But it did slow things down for for almost two years. In the meantime, there were these cost estimates continued to climb whenever they did a new estimate. And pretty soon we were over $10 billion, and then over 11, and then over $12 billion. So pretty quickly approaching this $15 billion billion that that the company had suggested back in the day. Right. In the meantime, the state of Washington, uh, you know, the, the default deadline at this point had been 2009 for operation of these facilities and clearly that wasn't going to be met and the state of Washington wanted to make sure that they had viable deadlines and they weren't just gonna say okay we're, we're happy to roll it back 10 years and they began a process of, of negotiations which eventually turned to litigation uh, which the state of Oregon joined and uh, eventually there was a settlement reached in 2009 that pushed the hot start of this facility back to 2019 with operations by 2022. Within, <laughs> within less than a year of that agreement and the consent decree, uh, the Department of Energy realized they were already in trouble with trying to meet some of those deadlines. And eventually the... Um, the litigation was re-energized and uh, went back into the courts with some hearings and some determinations uh, where we have now a consent decree by a federal judge which sets a milestone for full operation of these facilities of the year 2036. Are they going to meet it? <laughs> it's, you know, it's just, it, that is so far away. I mean, it's still almost 20 years. Uh, to imagine what could happen in the next what could 20 happen years. in the next 20 years yeah. and and just that it would take so long to do that so during this time as well there were some design issues that were raised uh, Department of Energy was was pretty much aware of them as well they've been looking at these things it evolved into a whistleblower issue that uh, raised the issues and got a lot of focus from Congress and others but the end result was that, the Department of Energy again stopped construction on the pretreatment facility and on the high-level waste vitrification facility until they could validate their design. So there were questions about whether or not the facility would operate as designed and whether or not it would operate safely. So I mentioned earlier the black cell issue. That's one of those issues that needs to be resolved. There are issues in terms of, of concerns about whether or not Particles of plutonium will settle into the bottom of some of the vessels in, in such a configuration that it w- might even cause a criticality. 
which you definitely don't want to happen. No. At the very least, there would be production of hydrogen gas from from some of these processes, and so there's concern about that, which can be volatile or explosive. Uh, there are issues of erosion and corrosion, again, because these these facilities, you don't want to have the pipes wearing out in the black cells or even elsewhere. Uh, so there are issues about how do you prevent the erosion and corrosion of these materials as they're flowing through the pipes. So in some cases, some of these, some of these have been somewhat resolved. There's still work underway, but in some cases, it may take five years and a few hundred million dollars to resolve one of these technical issues. A few hundred million dollars. It's just a drop in the bucket at this point, right? It's, it seems that way, yes. <laughs> it does seem that way. So as, as kind of a, a alternative, well, not an alternative, as, as a means to get some treatment started sooner. Uh, and this is an idea that's been kicked around for a while, but the Department of Energy started looking at it a lot, uh, a lot more seriously, and it kind of got caught up in this last round of, of litigation in terms of getting, getting some validation by the court even and by the state of Washington. So it's called direct feed law, and the idea is that they will bypass, for the time being, this huge pretreatment facility, this huge and very complex pretreatment facility, they will build a much simpler, smaller pretreatment facility with off-the-shelf technology to separate the cesium, which is the radioactive constituent of most concern in terms of its radiation levels. So it will remove cesium and it will remove the solids. Those, for the time being, would be sent back to the tanks. And the liquid waste stream that results after removing the cesium and the solids would then go to the low-activity waste vitrification facility, which is nearly completed. And the idea is, and the, the deadline the Department of Energy is working towards, is that this could begin by about 2023. Which is just around the corner, really. Which is just around the corner in a lot of respects. It still requires the design and construction of two facilities, one this simplified pretreatment facility, and one to deal with treating effluent that comes out of that process. So both those facilities are in design right now. Uh, it's additional construction costs because these facilities were not initially envisioned as, as part of this. If it works, and it, it seems as though it, it, at the moment it seems to be on a path towards working, you know, it will begin to immobilize some of the waste. It will help to some extent relieve the storage problem in terms of having available double shell storage space because you'll start reducing the volume of the waste. There is talk as well, if, if this is successful and, and works well, of perhaps doing a direct feed high-level waste. And when you split that waste stream of sending the high-level waste to the waste vitrification itself. There are issues in terms of waste feed and being able to maintain enough feed to keep these facilities, these vitrification facilities operating. Because once you start putting waste in them, molten glass, you don't turn them off because oh. it will then harden within the vessel mm -hmm. and your melter is lost. So you, you just have, have to, to keep it running all the time. It, you have to keep it running huh. and keep it going. And so the ability to keep that level of feed, as difficult as we've seen that waste retrievals are from the tanks, that's going to be a big challenge in the years going forward. Let's talk about that for a second. So when you when you want to remove the waste 
from one of the tanks and move it to one of these facilities, how does that happen? How do they move the material where it needs to go? They do it uh, for the most part now by above ground double wall piping that they put shield blocks over. So that is, that's relatively low tech and relatively easy to do, but there's more involved than that because the, the junctures, the piping, all the stuff underground, the ability to access waste and get it out of the tanks, all of those pieces of the infrastructure are very old, uh, some dating again to World War II, but others to the 50s and 60s. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to be able to upgrade those vaults and transfers and all those different things. In addition, there's within most of the tanks, there are instrument trees, uh, so a long pole with different instruments involved that uh, are no longer needed once you begin retrieving the waste. So you've got to get that out of the tank because it's really an obstruction within the tank that limits your ability to pump that waste out. But the bigger deal, I mean, moving, moving the liquids is relatively straightforward. But mobilizing sludges and solids that are the consistency of like a ketchup or like a concrete and being able to move that multiple miles is, is a big deal. Uh, because you're, uh, you know, one is mobilizing is one thing, but two, you're adding liquid to be able to mobilize it. So you're creating more waste, creating more waste. And it just is, uh, it's, it's very difficult. And then not all the tanks are directly linked to all the other tanks. You may have one tank leaked to three tanks. And maybe those three tanks don't have the right waste that you want to mix with this other waste. So you've got to clear that waste out of another tank. And oftentimes when you look at waste movement at Hanford from one tank to another, you might have 12 tanks involved moving waste from one tank to another just because of space or because of waste compatibility. So it is incredibly complex and difficult and expensive, and that's why it's taken so long. You have these tank farms at Hanford, and you have a lot of workers that are going in and out, making progress on the facilities. What are the safety concerns for the people on site working so close to this material? One problem that has cropped up again within the past couple of years and and had occurred over time several times is the issue of tank vapors. Within the tank waste, there is just a multitude of chemicals and radioactive materials that interact and do different things and and create vapors uh, that are vented out of the tanks, sometimes through filters, sometimes not. So these tanks are buried underground, but they have, you know, chimneys more or less that that go up out of the ground. Correct. Okay. And so you'll get vapors. And whenever, when you're, when, when the tanks are just sitting there, the vapors typically have not been a problem. But when you start mobilizing waste within a tank and moving waste from tank to tank, Uh, you do generally increase the amount of vapors. And we've had periods over the past year and a half, two years, uh, where a number of workers at Hanford have have, uh, noticed uh, bad smells, have uh, noticed irritations to their eyes or throat, and some have have been unable to continue work after after these exposures. Uh, it's, It's incredibly complex to deal with this so far for the Department of Energy. They have, they have actually poured many millions of dollars into detection capability, 
looking at different ways to mitigate the tank vapors. They've extended the, the vents, if you will, to get the, the vapors higher and away from the, from the tank farm workers. It has been a difficult challenge for them. And you can have, for example, if you had a, a five-minute incident where vapors were in a workspace and a worker feels that they're being exposed and leaves the area, five minutes later, ten minutes later, by the time you actually get some detection capability in there, there's nothing to... It's not coming to, out It's anymore. not coming out. Yeah. And so it's been a it's been it's been very frustrating, certainly for the workers. Yeah, I'd get the heck out of there if I started smelling something weird. Who have been, yeah. you know, who many who feel they have been severely uh, injured, and the Department of Energy trying to resolve these issues. It slowed some of the work down because it is required in some cases use of self-contained breathing gear, uh, which does a couple things for a worker. I mean, one, it does make them safer, which is the whole goal. It cuts their visibility because they're looking through a face mask. They're wearing a 30-pound tank on their back, so it's going to tire them and and add to their heat stress. So it, it has slowed down. The, the Department of Energy has looked at, at uh, on a tank farm by tank farm basis, trying to develop some chemical cartridges that uh, would fit on a small face mask. Uh, so they're doing some work to try and, and resolve that, and I believe that they have gotten agreement from the workers' union to use a certain type of cartridge uh, within at least one of the tank farms to, to allow that as opposed to the, the full self-contained breathing apparatus and to protect the workers. You know, it's easy to, to be kind of a Monday morning quarterback and look back and think, how on earth did they think they were ever going to get this going and done so quickly when you start listing all of the complexities and all of the challenges that it's going to take to really get this cleanup done? Absolutely. It's, uh, it is very difficult, and, and there, there definitely is a desire to have a schedule. We want to know when it's going to be done, and we want to know that there's efforts being made to meet the schedule. But at the same time, there's definitely artificiality in these schedules. Hopefully, they've gotten it right this time. Uh, but still, again, when you look at full operations in 2036, uh, and you look at, you know, in that time, the tanks are going to become 20 years older. 2036 is 90 years after some of the first tanks were built and received waste. And then you've got treatment, which, you know, the ballpark figure has always been 25 years, but you've got to assume it's going to take longer than that once they begin. So 25 years from 2036. And again, more, more than 100 years after they first started making plutonium. Right. But the direct feed low activity waste, the direct feed law that, that uh, may hopefully begin in 2023, you know, maybe that'll, that'll chew a chunk into that, uh, that period and it'll be less. Twenty thirty six. Think we'll make it? Well, one thing's for sure. Oregon will be there every step of the way to make sure cleanup is moving forward and that it protects one of our most important natural resources, the Columbia River. See photos of Hanford on our blog, energyinfo.oregon.gov. Learn more about our work at oregon.gov energy. Subscribe to Grounded on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn. And please rate us. Your reviews help others find our podcast. Thank you.
Until next time, thanks again for listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy.